0: It's a murder. It's the perfect murder. In a world abuzz with true crime, one reporter thinks he's found the case that will propel him to eternal notoriety. Stop the presses. The Onion has broken into fiction podcasting. And we're playing a very fatal murder right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. We are in the middle of about a million different takes on true crime right now, spurred on by the titanic success of the first season of Serial in 2014. It's been a long, strange four years which have seen the explosive growth of the podcast, but also the explosive growth of serial-inspired crime content. Some of it's great. Some of it's not so great. Some of it I was personally involved with, like the musical parody, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, which I presented in season one of Secrets, Crimes, to Audio Tape on the Wondery Network. What we have here today is something different. This is the first thing that I've heard that parodies the actual format of the high-minded public radio true crime podcast. And I know that there have been others out there, but I haven't heard them yet. This is The Onion's A Very Fatal Murder. Created by veterans of The Onion's online video shop, this was new territory for them. It combines elements of multiple public radio narrative nonfiction shows, not just the This American Lifestyle of Serial, but the literary air of S-Town, too, to say nothing of its various television influences. It's a tough balance to strike. But I think they really did it right. A Very Fatal Murder is immersive, ridiculous, and incisive. The whole thing clocks in at about 70 minutes. It hits it and quits it. I don't think it overstays its welcome. So, we're going to play the first episode of A Very Fatal Murder, but I encourage you to seek it out and binge it straight away. And after the feature, stay tuned for my biggest interview in history! Strap in, kids. Here we go with episode one. A perfect murder.
1: What makes a murder perfect? What elevates a murder from a regular ho-hum killing to a crime so gruesome and compelling that it deserves its own podcast? Does a murder like that even exist? Is it somewhere out there, waiting to be found the next time I open a letter from a convict, or the next time I rest myself out of bed at 2am to check the Google alert I set for the word decapitated? Or is it just a fantasy, A wild goose chase that will end in nothing but run-of-the-mill kidnappings, dull acts of sexual bondage, or the same old mass murder-suicides that say nothing about the fabric of America in the 21st century. Is it all just a beautiful dream? I'm David Pascal, and I've been asking myself these questions for years. For the first time, I finally have some answers. Hey,
2: Ethel. Hello, David. What would you like me to do today? A. Go online. B. Access my homicide locator function. C. Send email. D. Play music. B. Okay, David. Retrieving homicides.
1: This is Ethel. That stands for Extremely Timely Homicide Locator, by the way. Ethel's a supercomputer. Onion Public Radio hired a team of engineers at MIT to build her in order to help us find the most interesting, violent, culturally relevant murder cases in America. We've programmed Ethel so that not only can she comb through thousands of murders in a matter of homicide, minutes.
2: Double homicide, murder suicide, suffocation, satanic ritual, poison But she can also
1: update her own code based on what would make the most incisive, critically acclaimed OPR podcast. She's always learning.
2: David, I have some murders that involve the resentment of the white working class. Would you like me to print to North Printer?
1: Yes. I've been working with Ethel for three years trying to find the perfect case. We never stop pushing.
2: Homicide 30971B, Joshua Diamond. Kidnapped by stepfather in 1987. Severed head found in laundry machine.
1: Hmm. Ethel, can you set a filter for female victims only? Ethel settings can be adjusted to search for any number of factors. For example, we thought we had found our podcast when Ethel located the case of a girl who was raped and killed on the night of her 16th birthday, but we thought the situation didn't say enough about the decline of the middle class, so we changed the algorithm.
2: Update complete. Please restart computer.
1: Then, about a year ago, we thought we had it. It was a case that involved a whole group of coal miners, who were probably illiterate, but in a way that's charming and perfect, who went missing during a strike. The ideal case. We even started doing some preliminary interviews.
3: Nobody ain't telling us nothing. Nope. They act like they just gone fishing or something.
0: Nah. But we know. We know. They killed them. They ain't fishing. I miss my daddy.
1: But then our sponsor Hillamunk Cheese pulled out because they were dealing with a labor dispute of their own. After years of work, we were back to square one. But we didn't give up. Instead, we got better. We kept tweaking Ethel, hoping that the perfect murder was out there somewhere.
2: Retrieving homicides.
1: Then, finally, after years of searching for the perfect murder, a murder that's engrossing and mysterious, a murder that perfectly reflects our nation's current economic and social conditions— a murder that comments on the past and future of intersectional feminism, a murder in which a really hot white girl dies.
2: Homicide 9924R, Haley Price.
1: We found Haley Price. Haley Price was a typical 17-year-old with big dreams and clear skin when she was killed. She was a high achiever, a debate champion, a prom queen, a doting girlfriend. But Haley also excelled at being murdered, One chilly Thursday morning in May, Haley was found on the floor of the local bottle cap factory that her father worked at. What's more, she was dead. Haley's case fulfilled every one of the requirements we had plugged into Ethel. It was gruesome. It was unsolved. It commented on the ugly underbelly of the American dream, the decline of manufacturing, modern beauty standards, the gig economy, factory farming, deforestation, saturated fats, the fragility of love, the golden era of television, and CO2 emissions. And most importantly... No one had done a podcast about it yet.
2: 100% match. Retrieving. Coroner's report.
1: The coroner's report the Bluff Springs Police Department provided states that Haley Price was shot three times in the head. She had multiple stab wounds. She was strangled and smothered with a pillow. She was soaking wet and had clearly been drowned. She had dirt of the same composition found on Mars under her fingernails. She had been dead for seven hours when her body was found, but her fingernails had been painted 15 minutes ago. She was wearing the class ring of a boy who wasn't her boyfriend, Brian, even though he's a great guy and deserves way better. She had scratches on her arms and a bite mark on her leg. She was wearing a shirt that, according to her best friend, Alex, was super ugly and not her style at all. Her hair had been cut into a Beatles mop top. So what happened to Haley Price? And how can I get in on it?
4: Nine one one. What's your emergency? It's
5: a full moon. Horrible. Just horrible. I'd keep an eye on Calloway if I were you.
4: What do you mean, Haley's dead?
1: Oh my God, you didn't know? From the Onion and Onion Public Radio, I'm David Pascal, and this is a very fatal murder.
2: Morning, there. Can I get you a seat?
1: Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Bluff Springs, Nebraska is a small town, not much more than a collection of barns and cars. But the people who live here love it. And if you're the kind of person who watches CBS and likes organized religion, it's easy to see why. Bluff Springs is safe. It's the kind of town where no one locks their door, and parents don't have to worry about letting their kids walk their hogs around the neighborhood at night. That's why it was so shocking to the people of Bluff Springs when this happened.
4: 911, what's your emergency? Uh, I'm at the factory. It's Haley Price, and she's dead. She's dead.
1: When Haley was murdered, it shook this town to its core. After all, most of the people who live here had never met a podcast host, let alone a podcast host from New York City. They weren't used to stuff like this.
5: I just can't imagine anyone in this town doing a thing like that. It's real sad. It's got
2: everyone feeling on edge, you know. Everyone's kind of jumpy, I think.
5: Horrible.
4: Just
2: horrible.
1: Have you ever been interviewed for a podcast before?
2: Well, I, I don't believe so.
1: Life here is quiet. It's simple. A lot of the families in Bluff Springs have been here for generations. And as I drove through town and passed yet another novelty mailbox painted to look like a rooster, I couldn't help thinking evolution is a funny thing. The town's main road is lined by a few small businesses, a pet store, a post office. Haley's High School is there too. It's the type of school where the football field is bigger than the chemistry lab, and kids learn to throw a baseball before they take the SATs. The bottle cap factory where Haley was found is on this road too, and a single wind turbine, which I assume provides the town's only energy and entertainment, is just about a mile off it. On the side of the turbine, the name W.O. Calloway is painted in rusty red. You notice it right away when you take the Bluff Springs exit off the interstate. Since I got to town... I've been seeing this name everywhere.
4: That's Calloway's turbine, yeah. Calloway? Sure, he owns just about the whole town, I guess. Factory, turbine.
6: He owns my house? Uh, the pet store? Owns that seat you're sitting on. That
4: huge freaking mansion? You seen that? That's Calloway's. It's basically Fort Knox. I
6: saw him once being carried between
1: two of his helicopters.
4: I think he's fifth in line to be the king of the Netherlands, or something. I
1: heard he only eats goat. What's he like?
4: Calloway? I've got no clue. Never met him. Never even seen him.
1: Now, this is something I heard from a lot of people. W.O. Calloway looms large here, despite the fact that not many people have actually met him. Most people in Bluff Springs are employed by Calloway, either at the bottle cab factory or in one of his other businesses. But it is strange in a town like this, a town where neighbors stand in their yards talking and no one has HBO, that most people have never met their employer. Why? Could he be hiding something? And if so, what? Is he just an introvert? Or maybe he's gay and afraid to come out of the closet because the town will probably give him the chair for it. Or maybe, he's a murderer.
2: You all set, hon?
1: Yeah, thanks. Hey, actually, do you know anything about W.O. Calloway? Have you heard of him? Well, he
2: owns this diner for one thing. Never comes in, though. Always he has his assistant come pick him up this potato salad sandwich he made us add to the menu.
1: But I heard he only eats goat.
2: <laughs> Haven't seen a goat in this town since 73.
1: Really? Well, then I'll have one potato salad sandwich, please. I was starting to get to know Bluff Springs, but I still wanted to get to know Haley. So after I checked into my hotel and sent the OPR interns to pitch their tents on the side of the road, I went to talk to Haley's parents. This episode of A Very Fatal Murder is brought to you by Complete Meal. Complete Meal delivers perfectly portioned fresh ingredients to your home, along with professional chefs to cook them, spoon them into your mouth, and move your jaw in a grinding motion. No more guesswork and stress when it comes to making, eating, and digesting dinner. Complete Meal chefs will even let you know when it's time to say, Mmm,
5: good, and I'm full. Complete Meal. She was just a happy kid, you know? And she would just come home and say, Daddy, I want to be an astronaut, or Daddy, I want to be a vet. I I want to have ten horses, Daddy. (laughs)
0: She was our little dreamer.
1: (laughs) I'm interviewing Haley's parents, John and Bethany Price, in their home in Bluff Springs. There are little hints of Haley everywhere, from the picture of her on the mantle to the couch she probably used to make out with her boyfriend Brian on. This must be really hard to talk about.
5: It's been the worst month of our lives, as I'm sure you can imagine.
1: Yeah, you must have cried so much.
5: (laughs) Yeah,
1: yes. I just wish I could have been there.
5: Haley was just—she was this bright light in everyone's lives— and she was going to be a vet. She wanted to go away to vet school and then come back and open a practice here. She worked at the pet store. She just loved animals. And people, too.
4: Would you mind passing me that box of tissues?
5: Actually,
1: your sniffles are, are coming through really well on the mic, so let's just stay on this. Um, Mr. Price, would you mind talking more about Haley's hopes and dreams for the future? Well, she just, she was going to go off to college. Yeah, had her pick a school. Oh, did she apply to NYU? That's my alma mater.
5: No, she was in a stay in state. Haley was really a home. Oh, that's a us.
1: shame. I really think she would have loved it. The prices seemed to be responding really well to memories of their dead daughter. So I asked them to show me Haley's room, which they had kept perfectly preserved since her death. It was a typical 17 year old girl's room, plastered with photos of Haley and her friends, pictures drawn by the little girl she used to babysit, and magazine clippings.
5: She was really an artistic kid. You know, she loved music, she liked buying all the fashion magazines. And she was always, you know, cutting pictures out and changing her wall around and all that. Yeah, I was kind
1: of an art kid, too. I mean, I definitely hung out with everyone. I could easily jump between groups, but art was probably
5: my main thing. Oh, was that Haley at prom last year? Oh, yep, there she is. The prom queen herself. You know, she loved taking pictures of her friends. Oh, and there's Orlando Bloom. He's great. And now it's time for a word from our sponsor,
1: BoxBox. Actually, would you mind just reading this?
6: Uh,
2: What?
1: And if you have any personal experience using BoxBox, uh, you could add that if it's positive, of course.
4: Um, BoxBox is the service that sends a brand new box to your door every month. With BoxBox, you'll never need to drive hundreds of miles and pay hundreds of dollars for a box again. Sign up for Boxbox box by going to boxbox.com and entering our promo code Haley. You're 10% off your
5: first Boxbox. Boxbox. Box I was okay?
1: Awesome. Um, have you ever ordered these?
5: No. Oh,
1: well, let me know if you do, because I think if you order one, I get one for free. I was starting to get a more complete picture of Haley. To the people who know her, she wasn't just a perfect murder case. She was a girl with dreams of leaving her middle-of-nowhere town and traveling to New York City. She dreamed of attending cultural events and literary readings. But that dream will never become a reality. Never will Haley return home after a long day of freelance journalism to her live-in boyfriend and miniature poodle. Never will she lie on the roof of her bed walk-up with her college friends, taking in the glory of the city around her. Her life was cut short. And for what? After talking to Haley's parents, I knew what I had to do. I had to make the best podcast ever produced. I had to get more downloads and iTunes reviews than any podcast in history. I had to win awards. I could not let Haley die in vain. Coming up this season on A Very Fatal Murder...
3: A call
2: from Bluff Jail. I can't
3: believe she actually died. It's so gross.
2: That's very strange, David. Things do not add up. The full moon! Oh, fuck,
0: run! You may now kiss the bride. I loved her so much, dude, but she never wanted to play paintball. Now I might never find
1: out why. Visit our website to find pictures of Haley and sign up for OPR Plus to get access to pictures of Haley's corpse and hundreds of other corpses for just $5 a month. A Very Fatal Murder is brought to you by me, David Pascal, and Onion Public Radio. This podcast was made possible by the Make-A-Wish Foundation, Hillamonk Cheese, and listeners more generous than you.
0: So, when I said earlier that I got to pull off my biggest interview yet, I wasn't kidding. For A Very Fatal Murder, I talked to four people at once. So, you'll hear from the assistant director and the director, Fran Hoffner and Ryan Natali, as well as two writers on the project, David Sidorov and Louisa Kellogg. Sidorov will sound familiar to you because he's also the voice of David Pascal from the show. If it helps to differentiate their voices, David and Louisa were sharing a microphone, so their environment will sound different from Fran or Ryan. But if you get everyone's voices confused, don't worry about it. They're not going to test you on it, and neither will I. So let's take a listen. Fran, Ryan, David, Louisa, all of you welcome to Radio Drama Revival. It is such a pleasure to have you all on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank 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 you 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 for having us. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I'm going to – since there's four of you, I'm going to start by lobbing a question at just one of you and then we'll open it up for discussion. So my first question, David, is for you. I'm curious about the sort of research that you did to develop – your NPR voice. Now, you'd said in a previous interview that when you started working on the show as a writer, you didn't realize you were going to be cast later. But there's a series of very specific choices that go into an impression like that because a piece of public radio nonfiction has this very particular kind of register. So I wonder if you could tell me what you were thinking as you developed this David Pascal voice. That
1: is a great question. And that's true. I did not know that I was going to be playing this character... While the writing was happening, but I will say that like the scripts were in a place where like you kind of just got a sense of who this guy was as you were reading it. I mean, I listened to Serial and S Town, but I don't think I was do I wasn't trying consciously to do an impression of anybody with this. I had made a few on my own, like these like kind of parody like theory videos about things that was okay. like this character called Kyle and, and Ryan, who's also here, uh, with sort of while we were recording, he might be trying to make it a little bit more like that guy. So it was, there was a character I had done before that I would not say is, is super similar to this, but like maybe a little bit in the vocal register. Also, I, I mean, it is kind of just my voice. a little <laughs> bit. Uh, I don't think I, I don't really consider sure. myself an actor and like, I was definitely kind of nervous going into this because I loved the script so much and wanted to do a good job. But I don't know. At the end of the day, I think it was kind of my voice reading it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> have, have any of you ever heard the Casper Hauser This American Life parodies? Yes, I have oh, heard some yeah, of those. Yeah. They're great.
3: Yeah.
0: What's interesting to me about like the narrative nonfiction NPR voice is that I think it's constructed – Deliberately in opposition to the, like, Walter Cronkite, Brian Williams kind of, I am a newsman telling you the news with this very particular kind of authoritative ethos. And then it just kind of yanks it in this other direction.
1: Yes. It's very curious, even on things that are not, like, things that are just statements. Yeah. That should feel, yeah.
3: Like, casual for yeah. yeah, for really no reason sometimes. Like right. when they are just telling you facts, it's still very conversational and very like, oh, I'm just like thinking of how to word this now. And you know what? Like, I just thought of this other thing.
4: Right. Oh, I think they're trying to sound like your friend a lot of the time. Yeah. But it just seems cooler
3: to be like, I don't know that much. I'm a reporter, but like, I'm bringing you along, you know?
1: Right. That's the vibe of the whole thing is like, I'm not an expert and that's why you're able to get hooked into this is because you could see yourself getting kind of obsessed
0: Mm -hmm. with something like this. Yeah. Anyone could solve a murder. Yes.
3: Right.
0: Fran, I have a question for you. Uh, You had said elsewhere that earlier drafts of the story had a lot more teen characters in Bluff Springs (laughs) to go alongside Skiff and (laughs) Brian. Tell me about Fran's discarded teens. What are the characters that didn't make it into the final script?
4: Oh, my God. Well, I think that's for me and Louisa... Because Louisa and I both care a lot about teens broadly. Tell me if I've slandered you, Louisa. At no any point but I think I think there was like a whole sort of built out world. It was sort of the same group of characters. It was you know your Skiff, your Alex, your Dylan. But I think we just had more <laughs> about like what these guys were constantly yeah getting up to
3: about like what they would do when they hung out and like their weird rituals and like it was funny it really made us laugh but we looked at all the scripts and we were like this is very distracting and it's like not moving the story forward um so you know I would love to do a podcast about teens but like that wasn't what this was about
0: Fran in an interview with CNET you had said uh you wanted to have a host that treated Bluff Springs like an alien planet um there's been this impulse i think since the 2016 election especially on the part of the new york times for example to take these tours of parts of the u.s they call it trump country and then condescendingly say ah yes these simple people are still with the president right this like call to understand blue collar america i'm i'm curious what you all imagine david pascal has been reading and ryan since we haven't heard from you a bunch yet let's let's start with you What informs that character and how he conceives of Nebraska or places broadly outside of New York?
6: I mean, I think it's mostly just his love for New York and his um, not really wanting to be anywhere else no matter where it is. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's less coming from a place of what he doesn't like or like what he's reading and more just how much he loves the greatest city on earth.
1: Yeah, and I think he's kind of to a certain extent like gets off on going to this place that he thinks is, like, a foreign country. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, I mean, that kind of plays into what we were talking about with that, like, curious energy. Like, he thinks everything is weird.
3: Yeah, Um, he thinks that small-town life is, like, so beneath him and gross, but, like, only he can see the beauty in it, and, like, (laughs) he's going to show America why, really, it's, like, a beautiful place. And like, he can do that because he's from New York.
0: The elegant simplicity of an elephant ear.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
6: And also being in these places is also an extremely important aspect of making the perfect podcast. In order to make the perfect podcast, you have to go to these places. And that's like his ultimate goal. He's never seen ring toss before.
3: Yeah, it's an amazing (laughs) thing. And they enjoy it so much. That's so special that they, they find joy in the simple tossing of a ring.
0: I think I think one of the moments that really sold me on the series was the moment in the first episode where Haley's mother reads the ad for Box Box. <laughs> I, I want you to tell me what you feel about the absurdity of selling ads against the content of true crime shows.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this is Louisa, by the way. Um, I I don't like blame these shows for having ads. I mean. They have to make money to make their shows. I think it's just kind of like a pretty gross contrast sometimes when you have these like pretty silly, corny ads for the same like four products right after you have been like building up yourself as like this really serious journalist who's solving crimes and bringing the ills of America to light. But, I mean, I don't, like, blame them for having ads. Of course, like, you have to make money.
4: Yeah, they just always seem to be for the same, like, four items that no one I really know ever seems to use also. Yeah, it's definitely just, like, I,
3: the ads were not just about true crime ads. Like, all the podcast ads are have this, like, really specific tone. And they are also for this weird subsection of products that are mostly mail order.
0: hmm <laughs> Who who is the imagined demographic for those those ads? Probably us. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I was gonna say New Yorkers.
6: <laughs> yeah, New Yorkers.
4: People who like are constantly ordering things. I feel like it's yeah, it's like shut ins. I don't know.
6: <laughs> us.
1: <laughs> so many of them are like rooted in some kind of an app. So it's sort of like yeah. you're listening to, you're listening to this popular podcast on an app, probably on your phone. Right. So you have apps. You know, you, you ads. love ads. You're
3: obsessed. With them.
1: <laughs> it's safe to say you might be open to hearing about one.
0: <laughs> Did uh, Is there a backstock of ads that you didn't get to use similar to like the teens you didn't get to use? Oh, for oh sure. yeah. 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 There were a lot of yeah. ads
3: pitched and, and yeah, we just ended up taking the best seven or eight or however many we used.
1: And same thing with the other fake OPR podcasts mm-hmm. that uh, we tease that was sort of brainstormed in the same way where there was just like a whole bunch of them
0: and then they were narrowed down.
3: Yeah.
0: I mean, I know that there's been a lot of coverage of how the Onion pitching process works. Is is what you did, is this kind of brainstorming similar to how you develop headlines for the paper or how how does it work?
3: In some ways it is, especially with things like the ads, it's really similar. Like we want as many people as possible to pitch as many jokes as they can, and then we'll narrow it down. But the actual process for brainstorming and writing the podcast was really different and took a while to actually develop because we had never done something or like usually at the onion, you just don't do something that's so narrative and has to really make sense across a long period of time and has to have characters and has to really build a world. So I think we ended up with a process that looks a little more like a TV show process where we had, you know, a board with index cards with plot points on it, and we could move those around and really make sure that the story made sense and not just that we like were making a satirical joke.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I know that several of you are senior video contributors to The Onion. What tools have you been able to transfer over from the primarily visual medium to podcast?
4: Oh, that's such a good question.
0: It is. I mean, it sort of freed us up a little bit in a way because,
6: yeah, like you said, a lot of us are more in the world of internet videos where the demand is just, you know, cheap content, cheap content, cheap content. But for The Onion, it it needs to, you know, look a certain way. It needs to look and feel real or else it doesn't matter how good the joke is. If it doesn't look and feel real, it's just going to fall flat. Um, And that can be hard visually a lot of times. But I don't know, podcasting just or, or just the audio medium lends itself to being able to create more more worlds and scenes and characters that otherwise might not look believable, but you can make feel real through a podcast, I I think, you know, making this as a video probably would have been impossible, but like, I think we were able to make something here feel really real in a way we wouldn't have been able to do with, with video.
4: Yeah. And I, this is Fran and we got to, I think, play around a little more just because I think there was time that we got in producing this that we just like wouldn't have had if we were working on like setting up shots, for example. Yeah, And there was a lot more freedom for, um, I don't necessarily want to say improvising because I do think we pretty much stuck to what we had, but like the scene where David goes through the evidence locker and just sort of like pulls out (laughs) stuff was really just us with David and a file cabinet, just tossing a bunch of stuff in there and being like, okay, pull a bunch of this stuff out now and just go and, and we'll see like sort of what we record and things like that. When we have like the SWAT raid, a lot of that Foley was just done by (laughs) us running around the office.
1: (laughs) Yeah, something that was fun was that they actually like put the mic and audio equipment like around my shoulders. I was like holding it as if I was him and like really like moving the mic back and forth and stuff, which <laughs> honestly really helped me get into character.
5: Really?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think a, something that's kinda similar something that's kind of similar with like when I used to write for Onion mean, Video stuff is like in, in video stuff you'd always think about like what is the visual that supports this joke or like escalates this joke, and at least for me, you kind of when I was like writing script for this, I kind of thought about it the same way. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, oh, what's the visual? But then I'd be like, oh, okay, how is that visual thing? Yeah, uh, an audio thing. You know what across? I mean? Yeah, how do you get that across?
3: Yeah, and yeah. how do you like add texture to a world like with background sounds um, that? Because you don't want it to just feel, you know, it feels flat if it's just like David talking an interview. You want to feel like you're moving around, even though you can't announce like, here we are on the street every time you're on the street.
6: Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, and this is true in video too, it's like sometimes sort of less quality is more like if you can make it feel a little dirtier, it'll feel more real and then therefore like sell more and, you know, give, give you a little more texture like that. Um, so yeah, it was just like kind of being rough with the mic, giving it to David, uh, you know, recording outside in the wind, um, like those kinds of things sort of just make it feel more alive.
0: Sure. What, what are some challenges you encountered directing for the ear?
6: Um, I think it's, it's just that it's, um, I'm trying to remember a specific instance in the script, but, you know, finding these calls, trying to figure out what these things sound like. The evidence locker is one. I think there was something, I think, I think there's a, there's, there was a call in the script for um, David blowing dust off of something in, in the evidence locker. Um, and it's like, what does that sound like? Like those small details mm-hmm. of like, how how can someone who isn't reading the script get this across? Um Or understand what we're trying to do for.
4: I feel like we also, um, we had like a long conversation about what that spinning sound that's supposed to be him spinning his gun was supposed to sound (laughs) like. Yeah, that's right. None of us had a frame of reference of just like what that should sound like normally. (laughs)
6: Yeah, I went back and watched the scene in the deer hunter when they're playing Russian <laughs> roulette, and it doesn't make a sound. So it's like, okay, what does what sound then would an audience immediately register as that sound, even if the real version of it doesn't make a sound? And so then I went and watched that It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode where Frank's in the basement and is also they're doing their version of the deer hunter, and his more comedically heightened version does make a sound. So we went with something that kind of sounds like that. Yeah, it's like those little sound effects. They're so important, but you they need to be done in a way that an audience can immediately understand what it is. Did you guys use a fidget spinner sure. for that?
3: That's what I was going to say like I just kept thinking about you and your fidget spinner. Right, I really remember we talked
6: about. That. <laughs>
0: That's what you used as the no, revolver?
6: Oh, okay. No, we didn't. No, we ended up we ended up just finding a sound effect and altering it a little bit to where it it, it it felt real enough, but good fidget spinners don't have a sound, really. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's true.
0: Okay, so the entire run of a very fatal murder is a little over an hour. I'm I'm curious about the structural considerations that came into play when you made those decisions, because I know that a lot of your video work for the Onion tends to be between you know two and five minutes. So what what played into your decision to make these eight to twelve minute episodes?
3: I think it was kind of a balance between wanting it to feel really tight and full of jokes and still wanting it to kind of feel like one of those podcasts, which is has this long arc and has multiple episodes and has these multiple storylines that are drawn out. So obviously, our entire podcast is like the length of one episode of a true crime podcast, but you know we would run out of good jokes and it would be boring if we if we made like an 8 hour long comedy uh podcast i think <laughs> it seemed like a 10 minute episode was a good in between where you could really like tell a story but you also had jokes the whole way
6: through
0: okay to you what are the audio tropes of a true crime show what are the signature sound cues or music cues that tell you okay You know, this is a piece of journalism and a corpse is involved, but we're very serious about it.
1: (laughs) Um, There's so many different genres with even within true crime podcasts. I think it's hard to say because there are some that are – I think that this one is definitely more in the vein of like an NPR, Mm -hmm. public radio produced um, undertaking where a lot of true crime podcasts are kind of independent and like their own thing.
3: Right, and Um, like going more for the like we're going to scare you type mm -hmm. of – thing <laughs> i mean yeah there's a few things that we knew you know we knew like the type of music we wanted that like plinky piano mm-hmm. that's like classic we knew we wanted like a nine one one call a montage of like interviews with people who knew the dead person
6: the interview with the family is that's the one that stuck out to me and was a kind of a fun one to see realized
4: oh and we having like someone call in from jail Oh yeah. right, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
6: yeah, for sure.
1: The sound yeah. of a bustling diner.
4: Totally, yeah. It's like a fork <laughs> on the plate,
0: uh-huh. yeah. Um, in an interview with the podcast Behind True Crime, Fran, David, and Ryan, the three of you all talked about the staircase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's that show about? Because I've never, I've never seen it. <laughs> oh, how, yeah, I know, I know. Like the way you were talking about it, I, was like, I have to see this thing. Yeah. Um, how did it influence the production of a very fatal murder?
1: It's a show that was was that on. Stars, or am I making that up?
0: Sundance, I believe it was Sundance.
1: Yes, the Sundance Channel. It was a documentary series that maybe has like eight episodes, and I think they're an hour long each or something. It came out in like 2005 or something. It's a true crime documentary about a guy who was accused of murdering his wife.
3: Yeah, by pushing her down the stairs. Yes,
1: by pushing her down the stairs. She was found dead at the bottom of the staircase. He was the prime suspect and it's about this court case. And what's really cool about it is that the documentary team has like unprecedented access to him and his family and just like a ton of interviews with this guy who's like an insane, fascinating character. And you're just like seeing the inside of this, this court case, like from the family's perspective. And there's a lot of really crazy twists and turns that I won't spoil. It's a a really good documentary series.
3: It's full of like great twists. One like specific thing that I did think about some is the we had like a blood spatter expert in a very fatal murder, and like the bringing the experts in was like a big part of the staircase, I think. And that's part of a lot of true crime podcasts. But it's mm-hmm. like it's always like okay, now we're gonna like get to the bottom of it with like this person who has some other really specific skill set. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think if I'm remembering right, I think Fran said in an interview that you think people are attracted to demonstrations of skill, like people working out these cases in real time. Is that, is that an accurate?
4: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sort of what has like worked not only with like the staircase, but also, you know, serial and S town is you do feel in the tone of how these things are produced. You feel as if maybe you also could have figured it out if given the right pieces and the right aspects and, You know, one of the things with the staircase also is trying to figure out how this guy did it, if he did it. Uh, It's like, I think people just like puzzles in a lot of ways. And this is like the most like macabre kind of puzzle there is. But that is makes it so interesting to people.
0: What were the questions you were asking yourself as you began writing this project? Like, is it ethical to explore other people's pain for entertainment? Is, is true crime always exploitative?
3: I don't think necessarily. I mean, yes, technically it's exploiting a crime, but I don't think it has to feel bad and wrong to listen to. I, I don't think we were trying to like take down true crime or make people feel bad about listening to it because we all definitely enjoy true crime and it's so interesting. I think it was just more about like, getting people to ask those questions and and think about it and sort of see the ridiculous side to these types of things.
0: Sure.
4: Yeah. Louisa, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there was ever a big sit-down of, like, what is, like, the main thing we're, we're even trying to, like, take down, really, in any way. I think this was just, like, a story we were excited about telling because we all were were and are such big fans of the genre.
3: Yeah, and it was just, like, this is such a big... Topic. It's so popular, and there's so much that's like just narratively really interesting about it.
0: When when Pascal becomes police chief of Bluff Springs, it's kind of like that logical extreme, right? Of of thinking an independent reporter can not only crack a murder case, but then you know run the police department. But I, I'm I'm really curious about the choice to deploy that joke the way you did after the time jump bombshell. <laughs> can you tell me about that decision?
1: I mean I I remember that those two things were both things that were there pretty early on.
3: Yeah. Like we I think knew we knew we wanted to have the time jump. Right.
1: And we knew we wanted like kind of a core thing about the series was we wanted this guy to um become so enmeshed in this town that he travels to that he either like, you know, bungles things completely and ruins yeah. people's lives or sort of like kind of taking taking that to the, the extreme however we could and that right. quickly became like oh if he's trying to like solve this mystery and make the best podcast ever then he would sort of become their police chief um i remember the, yeah both of those things were were there yeah the those
3: beginning. were i don't remember how they com- came up at all right. but i think it does follow the progression that like i i think we were like oh should he be the mayor but like police chief totally makes sense because like he's always thought that he's the only person who can solve the murder
1: right and I I know that the the time jump reveal was always kind of tied to that like USC or yeah. UC sorry UCLA right yeah, know, yeah. The, the um
3: the screenwriting the, professor yeah
1: we knew that we like when Louisa mentioned the like the string of experts that he meets with that was always something we wanted to do like starting with the blood splatter expert but then kind of just tightening that um to really really specific things that he needs an expert to to talk about. And one of those things is the, just the structure of the entire podcast. He brings on a, a screenwriting professor. And then we knew we wanted that to end with the bombshell. Right. That, that and was. then I think <laughs> someone
3: was just like, that was 10 years ago. And then we we're like, yeah, that would be funny if it yeah, was. <laughs> so that just clicked, and you're like, yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> It also feels like an oblique reference to Brian Reed, just kind of casually dropping in S-Town that John B. McElmore is dead in its way. Yeah, I don't know if
1: that was like a conscious thing, but there's definitely a a lot of, like that kind of casual dropping of things is something that we wanted to put in a lot where he's like, oh, by the way, this like major bombshell about the case that I didn't tell you. Yeah, I I, I knew that the whole time. Yeah, I I know (laughs) that the whole time. They
3: like (laughs) drop it at the end of the episode, they go into the piano music and then it's like next time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that note, I knew about it the whole time. But it didn't fit the structure. Sure. Right. Next time I'll tell you who the murderer
3: is. <laughs> <Yeah>. He's <laughs> sitting right beside me. Next time.
0: <laughs> Scrolling through my questions. Let's see. Oh, I had, is it journalism? What is journalism? But we don't have to wrangle with that. <laughs> <either>. One, <two. laughs> oh boy. Um, do you have plans to do more of these uh, fiction podcasts in the future?
6: Nothing on the books uh, right now, but if people are enjoying them, we we certainly wouldn't mind.:
4: <laughs> Yeah, I think what made a very fatal murder so special, just as like a staff to work on, was how much like time and thought and care went into it, and I just I think it's important to like all of us to have an idea we feel as excited about before we jump into a new thing or a season two, but no doubt like it could totally happen.
0: How how long did the process take from ideation to to publish?
4: Uh, did this start last May?
0: Yeah. Yes, it did. Um, yeah,
4: because when, like, when did you come
6: I out? I came out in June. I think that was... So yeah, uh, it was yeah. probably a
4: little before yeah. that. Yeah. yeah.
6: And in terms of ideation, I think it's like probably even predates that in terms of like doing some sort of true crime, the Onions version of a true crime thing, and I think it sort of started to get figured out that, okay, let's do a podcast around that time. Then it was it was scripted. We, we didn't really have like a, a dead set time that we wanted to like get it out by. So it was just sort of something we, we sort of chipped away at. It's kind of like a, a, a passion project a little bit, a passion project at work, if you will.
0: Sure, I, I understand that. I have reached the end of my questions except for one very last one, which isn't actually about a very fatal murder at all. Um, Fran, you got to talk to Ruby Tando of the Great British Bake Off.
4: <laughs> yeah, she's she's great.
0: I wanted to ask you a question. You asked her, maybe ask it of everybody. Um, do you have a go-to fail-proof comfort meal?
4: Wow. Uh, it probably just a big pasta is my go-to. I'm really into taking four hours to make a big sauce these days. Trying to really commit myself to sauce. Okay. So that that's, that's where I'm at. I have a big pasta in the fridge right now that I think is going to get me through like a week and a half.
0: I was going to ask if you'd made the splendid table bolognese yet.
4: No, I've only done the New York Times one, which is, I forget what old Italian lady they've poached it from.
0: Marcella Hazan, maybe?
4: Yeah, that is that is sort of my go-to, but now I have Dining In by Alison Roman, and she has this one where you have to slow cook tomatoes for three and a half hours, um, which my mom told me is a waste of time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I was like, it's, you don't have to look at them. They just go away and uh, you clean up. Yeah, that's like, so I just made that and I was very impressed by it. So that might be, that's a little less labor intensive than a Bolognese, which I feel like I have to look at every 15 minutes for like four hours.
0: <laughs> Sure. Ryan, what about you? Oh, that, this is
6: crazy because um, I, I also have a big sauce in my fridge that is probably going to last me a couple weeks. Um, but I think it's also it, – I, I think oh, there's this one thing uh, that we make that is like a – it's a roast chicken, but you you put it sort of on one of those um, – uh one of those grates on top of the 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 roasting pan and in the roasting pan you have like tomatoes and and garlic and uh i think like some thyme um and a little bit of stock and all the chicken drippings like uh get down into there and it it makes this nice like sauce that you toss some pasta in afterward and you serve it with the chicken it's with some like uh uh olives and capers it's great
0: that sounds fantastic
6: I don't know what you'd call it. I'd, maybe chicken pasta.
1: <laughs> you guys are really good chefs.
6: <laughs> oh, my next? Oh, boy. I don't know. A hamburger? Is <laughs> 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 a like, leghorn chicken sandwich. Yeah,
1: I don't know. Yeah.
3: That's good. Yeah. Um, I love it. I Well, if I cook, I like to cook shakshuka.
5: It's okay. another
3: saucy treat. And if I get to, I'm get ordering food, I love to order some pad you with tofu. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good.
6: Yeah. 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 yeah.
3: It's so squishy.
6: Oh, yeah. If you're ordering, <laughs> um, uh, if ordering's on here, too, just like a big pizza. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's totally. <laughs> if cooking is it, then I guess I, chili is the thing. Oh, that yeah. Cook. Yeah.
1: Oh,
0: yeah. That's, that's good. oh Is there anything um, y'all are interested in discussing that we didn't cover related to the show or things that you feel the public ought to know?
3: I don't know. uh, I think it was just a really fun process and like I personally think that's why it came out so good.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Yeah.
1: And and Katie Eiser wishes that she could be here. She was not able to join us for this, but she...
3: Katie is the mastermind Mm -hmm. of a Very Fatal Murder.
0: Oh, tell me about Katie. Tell me about how she masterminded the process.
3: Well, she was like the, yeah, the director of the whole project and, you know, was overseeing the whole, like, brainstorming and writing process and, you know, did the final edits of all the scripts. So, yeah, she's a big part of it.
4: She was just really the most dogged about it, too. Like it would maybe fall off the map for a little bit because people had other projects they had to work on. And it was sort of Katie who was always there. Being like, got to go back to this, like still here. We got to get through it in a way that uh, I think is rare. Sometimes it's very easy to like get caught up in like the project of the moment.
3: Right. Especially because yeah. it wasn't going to, you know, we didn't have real ads on there, so it wasn't going to make us money, but um, she just really believed in it and fought for it.
0: Do you think if you make another podcast, you'll make another podcast feed or will you do something sort of like a Radiotopia showcase where you just have these, you know, mini series that are all distributed through one channel?
6: Uh, I think The Onion is probably interested in dominating all forms of podcast.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been assuming that they would at least introduce it on the same feed. But I don't. I actually don't know. That might not be a question for us. I'm not sure who's in charge of that.
4: Our first priority is getting OPR tote bags. And then after that, really, the sky's the limit. That
1: was
0: the goal from day one. Yeah.
4: Well, we have to reach our fundraising goal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I, I know that there aren't any specific plans to develop any new podcasts in the immediate term, but I guess I want to close by asking you all what else is really... Gnawing at you lately? Like, what other things are you really interested in thinking about and writing about? That's a good question.
3: I mean, I don't think this isn't like particularly funny, but I think it's just like interesting to think about the bubbles and pockets that we all get into on the internet. So, I've just been thinking a lot about like how the internet affects our lives and the way we communicate. I mean, I would love to find a way to eloquently write about that. It's a hard,
4: it's a hard subject. Um, I'm trying to think about mine. I'm always just interested in like personality-driven uh, content. Content's such a dirty word, but I really do mean that. Like across <laughs> like all all platforms, that's like so much of what we see now in both like writing and in video production and in podcasts also is like do you like this person and if so will you listen to them talk about literally anything whether or not they have that expertise and sort and i just am always uh i love to see a new person i've never heard of pop up and try to understand how how it got here
1: um kind of to piggyback off of what louisa said and like i'm also really interested in in the internet and like the bubbles that we're all in and how it's making us communicate. But also these sort of just like subsections of people, like we just talked about that are like really passionate about really specific things and have created a community either on the internet or off. That's always super interesting to me. And sometimes you find that with these true crime podcasts, like Mm -hmm. people who are obsessed with one particular theory or something. And um, it's just, it's just Mm -hmm. uh, always a fun
6: and interesting rabbit hole to go down.
0: Ryan, what about you? uh this is
6: probably like a total left turn from the wrestling group but i'm like i'm just always thinking about like sports documentaries like that, that like tom versus time and and the title towns that are on like facebook and the espn 30 for 30s uh, i just i think those would be so fun i am also i also really like cults
0: mm-hmm. okay
1: oh
6: yeah cults are good
0: cults are, cults are great <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming on Radio Drama Revival. This was a delight.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank Thank you. Thank you so
0: much. Yeah, Yeah, thank you, David. Where do you stand on true crime? Why do you think cereal inspired so many similar productions? Do you have a favorite comfort food? Share your recipes and your ideas and your hot takes with me at Radio Drama on Twitter. I will probably make what you suggest. Hey, guess what? We have a Patreon now. Head to Patreon.com/RadioDramaRevival and pledge to support the show. Here's the deal: for a dollar a month, you'll get access to our high-bitrate, ad-free episode feed, which will publish episodes special for you before they go live elsewhere. For $3 or more per month, you'll get behind-the-scenes access and extended interview cuts by Eli. Up now, for example, is an extended cut of my interview with Lance Dan, the creator of Blood Culture. It's a full 15 minutes longer than the original cut for the episode. But we've got more. Extended cuts with Casey Wayland of We're Alive, LaRon and Lamar Tate from Bronzeville, and soon, an extended cut of the very interview you just heard today with A Very Fatal Murder. For $5 or more per month, you can join our Discord channel and hang out with RDR staff and fans in the Cool Kid Club Zone. And for $10 a month, I will include you in the story credits of an episode of Radio Drama Revival, which is what I'm about to read after this. So, if you've been a fan of this show and you want to support the work that we do, highlighting creators and shows, researching and interviewing people, and editing those interviews, please help us out. That's patreon.com slash revival. And now, it's time for some credits. Our theme music is Danger Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is brought to you by Matbox. Matbox is the service that brings the noise directly to your home entertainment system. And if you didn't know, now you Boudreaux. Our interviews producer is brought to you by McElvait. Don't innovate, McElvait. It's the way of the future. Would Eli to you? Our research was conducted by HEMO, an algorithmic service that approximates two very talented human beings, Heather and Monique, who live in the cloud now. Our executive producer is Greenhouse.io, a new service for creating audio drama podcasts. Just give us a fucking ton of money and Fred will make a podcast just for you. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs> I think there's a tiny piece of fennel seed in my throat from dinner. But you know what? We pushed through. I'm a survivor. Okay.